Welcome back to the Reflection Podcast. I'm Ed Blonsky, and on the Reflection Podcast, I talk with people who God has called and then equipped to reflect his love and his glory in a world that's increasingly getting darker. I'm so glad that you joined me today, and I hope that you will stick around. At the end of today's episode, I have some uh, comments that I want to reflect on as well that were made uh, in church uh, and online uh, recently at St. Matthew. The Reflection Podcast comes to you from St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Hawthorne Woods, Illinois. We are in the northeast corner of Illinois, um, just about 50 miles northwest of downtown Chicago. And at the end of today's show, I'll tell you how you can get a hold of us and maybe plan a visit. We'd love to see you uh, at St. Matthew. But right now, let's see who's in the pastor's office with me today on this episode of the Reflection Podcast. In the pastor's office with me is Dr. Jerry Bergman. Thank you so much, Dr. Bergman, for being with me today. It's good to be here. I want to talk to you about um, some of the things that you do. You've had a long and illustrious career that I've looked at on your um, biography page on uh, the website for Creation Ministries International. But I I want to hear it from you yourself. Uh, Give us a little bit of a biography of yourself. Well, most of my life has been teaching at the college level. I was at uh, Medical College of Ohio, University of Toledo, Bowling Green State University, and other schools. And I taught primarily in the science area, primarily in biology, chemistry, physics, and so on. And you've been doing this for how long? Forty-some years. Okay, so you've got some experience in this. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. I want to, and I want to dig into the, a little bit of that experience. Um, what led you to go into that field? Always had an interest in that area. My dad was scientist and. Uh, he spent a lot of time when I was younger teaching me about science. He taught me in such a way where I'd ask a question and he would never answer it. He would try to get the answer out of me. Frustrating at times, but I think I learned better what he was trying to talk about. I understand that. Uh, that sounds like a good parent right there. Yeah. Don't give the answers. Just give them time to find the answers yeah. and guide them along. Um, so where are you today? What What is it that you're doing these days? I'm retired and I speak uh, quite Often in churches, I just was at the uh, church in Toledo, Church of the Cross specifically, and Friday I'll be going to uh, Indianapolis and be doing about seven, eight churches. And so what? Pretty busy in that. Yeah. What? What? What's your favorite topic, or what's the most popular topic that you discuss? Well, apologetics in various areas, and so yes, yesterday at the church in Toledo, I did a presentation on why God created pathogens like viruses and bacteria and so on. Why would God make all these things which are bad? And so I pointed out that they're not bad. They're good. Almost all of them are good. And I mentioned some of the uses of them. Interesting. Viruses virus especially intrigue people. We're yeah. Very aware, of, <laughs> very aware of the uses of viruses. No, it's certainly, it's, viruses are certainly on a lot of people's minds these days with uh, the coronavirus. Um, and I think that a lot of people have a hard time seeing what good can come out of that. Uh, what exactly do you mean? Uh, how can these pathogens and viruses be a good thing? Well, let's put it this way. You would not be alive if it was not for viruses. Viruses are a critical part of all life. 
They're the basis, basically, of all life. And therefore, we have to understand them. Although, the interesting thing is, the vast majority are positive, And therefore, there's no reason to research them. We research the ones that cause problems. So we know more about the ones that cause problems than about the ones that don't. And I talk about why some cause problems, what's happened, etc. And uh, technical, somewhat technical, but I just presented it yesterday. And I think I'm going to dumb it down a little bit. So the more general audiences can follow it. Sounds like a good plan there. Um, so what, why do you think God called you to do this, to, to bring you to this time and place to do this certain thing? Probably because of my own experiences when I was, and don't even remember how old, but I was about two or around that. And, and my same block on 13 Mile Road in Royal Oak, Michigan, there was a church there, which my brother and I walked down to, went to the church. And I remember going up the stairs in the church, which I couldn't go up very well because I was so small. But nonetheless, in the church, they had a felt board and they presented the gospel using that felt board. And I remember I accepted, remember in my mind, thinking I accept Christ, I accept the salvation message. And then, of course, as so many of us, and I'm finding there are many more than I thought, our prodigal sons and I went to college and learned all about evolution and was moved in that direction and realized after doing a lot of study, my response is, well, maybe they have a good case. Maybe indeed we did evolve. Maybe God did not create us. And so I then spent much of my life doing research on this. And so I have the advantage. I've been on both sides. So many Christians have been on one side and that's all. And there's not much motivation to look at the other side or find out why the other side is wrong. It's wrong, period, end of story, we move on. But for me, I was very concerned about both sides because I was on the other side. And therefore, I spent more and more time doing research on the creation evolution issue, more and more time, especially, of course, looking at creation and the implications of it, as well as evolution and why it was true or false. And I, I guess I have to admit, I find it very rewarding because no matter what topic I look at, I find the evolutionists cannot support their worldview. A good example is I'm working on a paper now, which is the evolution of hearing. And the literature is quite clear. There's a lot written about it. And basically they admit we don't have a clue as how hearing could evolve. We know most life does not have the ability to hear and vertebrates and much life at that level does and there's a chasm between the two so how do we go from not in being able to hear to being able to hear and hearing of course is enormously complex in my paper i tried to explain it but i kind of gave up because it's just too complex and i gave a two paragraph outline which is brief to the point showing indeed just trying to show basically it's extremely complex and scientists, by the way, admit they don't really understand fully how we hear, <laughs> amazingly. And, and they have not a clue as to how hearing could evolve. Although they've tried, but nonetheless, they admit we just, we have no, we do not understand how hearing could evolve. It's useless until it works. You said you came to faith in Christ early on. Uh, and then went into the sciences as, as you studied. Did you carry your faith into that? And was there a conflict there? It was there, but there was a conflict. And at the church I just spoke at the other day, I had a science teacher come up to me and say, well, God could have created using evolution. 
And so I thought, well, that's one possibility. Maybe God created by using evolution. But of course, when you study evolution, you realize that there's no way God could have created using evolution. You also realize the whole purpose of evolution, as Darwin made clear, is to murder God. When you want to murder God, how do you do it? You destroy the reason people believe in God. And the main reason, if you do surveys, the main reason people believe in God is because the world around us, the trees, the sky, the birds, the animals, life, and the, the stars, etc. People believe in a creator because they're convinced, clearly, we have a creation out there. The only explanation, valid explanation, is a creator. And so, therefore, Darwin realized that. He had, had a seminary degree, so he went and spent four years at, what, Oxford, I think, or it was... Uh, I think Oxford or Cambridge, one or the other. But anyway, she spent four years, got a seminary degree. So he knew Paley. He knew the arguments that we use to support the creation, intelligent design worldview. And so he then spent his life attacking those arguments. Because he admitted he was a very, admitted he was very impressed with Paley. One of the best studies he had. In fact, you had to study it from cover to cover at the university at that time. And he was understood that, yes, people accept creation because of Paley's ideas. You know, it's a watch, there must be a watchmaker. And so therefore, he tried to, he spent his life attacking that worldview. And of course, that's basically what his goal was to murder God. He said, it's like committing murder. So indeed, although he usually wasn't that blunt because his wife was a creationist, all her life, she died a creationist. And he realized, I don't want to upset my wife. I have a great marriage, I have wonderful kids. I, I've got to be careful. And so he was very careful, but indirectly that helped his cause because he was very careful and therefore people didn't respond, you know, to blunt statements. Well, there's no God and God didn't create us and we evolved, etc. He didn't come out and bluntly push his ideas. He was very tactful and he had to be very tactful because, of course, he realized his wife especially was uh, a creationist and uh, she made that very clear. She And she he said once that I moan at times when I realize that my wife is not in the same place that I am. So anyways, that's a short, short review of. Interesting that um, what, what comes to mind as I'm listening to you tell me a little bit of the history of Darwin is um, he had to be very careful in his evangelism of evolution. And, and there, there might be something to learn there that we don't just dump on people that, you know, here's what we believe. We, we have to be tactful, as you said. And um, when it comes to Darwinian evolution, are we still in Darwinian evolution or we, ha or we have moved on to a different type of evolution in the, uh, in the world today in the 21st century? Well, some would say, yes, we are ultimately in a Darwinian evolution. But on the other hand, now we can direct evolution by genetically modifying organisms and so on. But of course, that's intelligent design. I mean, they're admitting basically evolution is not working in, in the way it, they theorize it works, but we're, we're using intelligent design. When I was, admittedly, I did not take a lot of science in college, um, I, but I did take biology. I had to take that as an undergraduate. And I learned about macro evolution and micro evolution and is there what's the difference between those two and is there something that um, faithful Christians Bible believing Christians can take away from some of that study well this evolution is trying to divide the world up into macro and micro and of course you know, my macro is what from apes to us 
micro is small changes we see all around us, but we really prefer to avoid the word evolution. We use the term variation within the genesis kind. And we can see that, of course, with dogs. Originally, we had, we know this is true because we've, we've done it. We had originally the wolf kind. And from the wolf kind, we have something like 520 different breeds of dogs. And if you look at the skulls, for example, of dogs, you can see that in fossil record, they look clearly like different animals. And so we have a huge difference from the original wolf kind that we see today in dogs. We have a eight pound dog here, a little guy. And my daughter has a 150 pound dog, a mastiff. And there's just, there's a world of difference. But yet we know they're all dogs and we know ultimately they can interbreed and therefore we know that that occurred. So evolutionists like to use the term microevolution, but really it's not evolution. It's simply variation within the genesis kind. And so there is a great deal of potential for variation in many forms of life. Some dogs, of course, cats, there's some that there's a huge amount of variation. But on the other hand, many animals, there's not much variation at all. So some it's limited. Some we have a great deal of variation and cats and dogs and cows and so on. Horses are good examples. I remember uh, watching a video of Ken Ham uh, talk about using that very example of dogs, that we have all kinds of different types of dogs, and yet they're still all dogs. <laughs> that is an evolution. Um, we just have, like you said, the variations. Uh, we're not, we're not um, well, I think the way he put it, you know, we, we don't get from a, a rose bush to a goat. You, you, don't, you don't make that kind of leap, but you do get different types of within the same, I guess, species um, and the variation there. And that, like you said, I think that does point to there is there is an intelligence in this uh, diversity that that is beautiful. And and God, that certainly uh, does tie in well with what is revealed to us in the scriptures. Um, as a Bible believing Christian myself, I look at the Genesis account, Genesis one and two, and I say, well, that makes sense to me. Um, and do you see that uh, in the creation as a scientist that Genesis does make sense? Or is that, is there another way to go? Well, yeah, it does. In fact, I accept Genesis because of my study of science. God reveals himself in his creation as well as in his word. And we, we tend to rely, of course, heavily, which is fine, on his word. But on the other hand, people like me who have, love science, and there's a few of us out there, by the way, we, we tend to see God in looking at his creation. Like my dog, for example, my Rudy, my little guy Rudy. I can see so much in Rudy that was created specifically for us. And I have a whole PowerPoint on this where I talk about how God's work specifically, how God created specifically dogs for us. And uh, I think it's very convincing. If you're not you know, oriented towards nature and science, probably it's not that convincing. But on the other hand, when I do these presentations, I find that it does, especially dogs. Just about everybody loves a dog. And you show these pictures of, of puppies and so on. And the, the little kids that are you know, three, four, five years old, well, ah, oh, and ooh, and oh, is that cute. And so you can see they respond very early. So... I think that God designed the faces and the personality of dogs specifically to meet the needs of humans and horses and other animals as well. When I talk about dogs, people say, well, what about cats? Don't you like cats? And so I say, well, I guess I need to do a presentation on cats. 
They're different animals in many ways, but on the other hand, some people prefer cats, some prefer dogs. But again, cats, I think, likewise, were created to meet a need that we have. They're created for us. And that helps me, I think, appreciate the creation when I realize that these critters were made specifically for us and our enjoyment and our and our and have fellowship with with not just people but also with animals. That sparked something too, and 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 connected that God would create that for us. And then going back to what you had mentioned about Darwin and his motivation for coming up with his theory of evolution, um, that there is a, a, a motivation behind these things. It's not simply. Um, how would I put it? The it's not strictly um, in personal science. There is something back behind it, and there's a reason that that some of this, uh, these theories and these um, these um, scientists and, and and what they're doing, there's a there's an underlying reason for it. Do you see that also? Oh yeah, I do, and I could mention that there's a lot of people came to Christ through science. And I have a whole book of cases of people who were atheists and no, no belief at all. And they admitted they came to Christ through their study of science. And science, therefore, was an important way of helping them understand we have a created world. What does that tell me about the creator? A lot. And therefore, they become Christians and in a number of cases, quite active, open Christians as a result of their study of the creation. And some of the, the scientists in history um, were also, you mentioned Darwin was a Christian, and some of the other ones as well. Um, I, I, if I'm not remembering exactly, uh, but Copernicus, Galileo, these were people who professed faith and, right. and are paradigms of, uh, of, of science, too. Before Darwin, as far as we know, every naturalist that ever lived before Darwin was a creationist. And so after Darwin, of course, he was more successful, I think, than he ever thought he would be. And after Darwin, now we have a large number of scientists that are atheists and do not accept the creation worldview. Why is this important, do you think, uh, that there is this debate between creationism and, and evolution? What's at stake with this debate? Well, a best example of what's at stake is a book that I just read about Europe. And they specifically looked at Netherlands. And they mentioned before Darwin, as far as they could tell, every, everyone in that country were believers in Christ. And therefore, they were committed to the Christian creation worldview. At now, almost 51% of the people in that country are self-stated atheists. And so, indeed, Darwin is the doorway to atheism. I did a whole book on that as well, by the way, showing <laughs> all the people who were at one time Christians who became atheists because of that step, because of moving from Darwin to atheism. <laughs> that leads me into that, uh, this kind of uh, the, uh, discussion here of this debate. How, is how does it affect the church and, and how important is it to the Christian church that we do have this debate? It affects the church a great deal because so many people like me go to college, get their degrees, accept evolution, and some, of course, reject creation and God because of this, or some, like the person I was talking to the other day, says, well, maybe God created using evolution. So they accept some type of theistic evolution. But nonetheless, it affects their faith greatly and sometimes tragically.
let's talk talk to me a little bit about since I've got a professional and and uh, such an uh, an academic on about the the theory of evolution itself. Um, I've heard it said that it is it, it's a thought a, a flawed theory. Is that true? Is it a is it a good theory or a bad theory? The basic theory is very simple. One, we have variation in the natural world, and variation allows some animals to be better adapted, other animals to be less well adapted, and those that are better adapted are more apt to survive. So we have the survival of the fittest. But that's pretty obvious. That's not the issue. The issue is the origin of genetic variety. Where did it come from? And scientists have looked and looked for 150 years, and the best explanation they have, the origin of genetic variety, is mutations. In fact, they're pretty open in saying, indeed, mutations is the source of genetic variety. Without mutations, we don't have any evolution. The problem is the vast majority of mutations are either near neutral, which means they by themselves are not harmful, but they add up. It's like aging. As you get older, kidneys don't work quite as well, muscles don't work quite as well, the eyes don't work quite quite as well. And in time, you get to a certain point where the body fails. And... Evolution is the same problem because when almost all mutations are near neutral, they add up, causing eventually death, or they're deleterious, causing a problem. And so the problem with mutations is you are not going to get what you need to produce evolution by mistakes. And we know exactly why, and evolutionists just can't accept this because they believe in evolution. When I taught at the medical college, my research area was cancer. Cancer is caused by mutations. So we know a great deal about mutations. One example is, as we know, most mutations are in what they call hotspots. That means in the genome, in the specific gene, they tend to occur in certain areas over and over and over. Therefore, you will never get the variety you need for evolution to work. You will get mutations in the same areas over and over. And that's important in cancer research because we find out where this specific mutation occurred in your cancer, and then we can treat your cancer according to the specific damage it caused. And you sequence the, the, the cells that are, that are mutant, and therefore you find where the mutation occurred. And so now we haven't, we've been somewhat successful, we have a ways to go, but on the other hand, that helps us realize that. And at the medical school, this is very clear, we talked about this every day, It's very clear that mutations are not beneficial. They're never going to lead evolution. Now, we never went that far because they believed evolution. But on the other hand, they have belief on an idea which is not supported by science, period. So the evolution claim is simply not true. And it's unequivocally not true. And when I present my presentation on this, if you believe it's true, then if you're pregnant or you want your wife to be pregnant, you need to spend some time on an x-ray machine so we can get some mutations going, so we can get some mutations in sperm, the egg, or both, and then you'll have a gifted, have a genius child. Well, we know that's foolish. It's not going to occur. You know that if you're exposed to mutations when a woman is pregnant or the man is when he, before he fathers his children, we know that that's going to cause problems and we know it's not going to be good in the majority of cases. And so therefore we know that evolution does not work. It is not true. It didn't occur. But, of course, it's a matter of belief. People believe it, and they have faith in it, in spite of the fact, and when I bring this out, people, they get angry at you. Well, they get angry because evolution is their worldview. It's the way they see the world. Evolution explains 
why we're here, we evolved, and the purpose of our life, you know, reason for living, to survive, and where we're going, we die, we die, that's it. And so Christianity, of course, has a very different idea where we came from, where we're created, why we're here to please God, to serve man, to you know, have a family, to, to worship God and so on. Where we're going, we're going to heaven. And so therefore, the, 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 the worldviews are very different. They're, they're in many ways the opposite. But that's their worldview. And I've had a number of scientists tell me, tactfully, well, if you're right, I'm going to go to hell. So they simply don't want to accept that worldview. And they, 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 and of course, part of the, the concern is, is that their environment all around them is the evolutionary worldview. When I was at the University of Toledo, that was very clear. Their, their worldview is evolution, period. And if you question evolution, they, they kind of wonder, what, what's your problem? Where are you coming from? What's, are you really questioning the belief of scientists, which is universally accepted among all scientists? And so you can see the, the quandary you're in. Understandable, definitely. Um, in your, uh, as you mentioned, your, your long history and now you're, you're retired, who was it that really um, mentored you along the way? Um, or, or maybe there's a group of people that, that, that were mentors to you that helped you get to this point. Well, I find creation groups are very important. We have a creation group in Toledo. We used to have one in Detroit, but unfortunately many creation groups are not able to survive. But the creation groups, you're, every month you meet for an hour or two, and therefore you, you cannot accept this worldview effectively with one sermon at a church. You need to have a steady diet of information which helps people understand why evolution could not be true and is not true. And, and to answer these questions, these questions come up, you read the literature, and therefore when these questions come up, you have a, a group of people you can bounce them off of. Well, what about this? I just read on the news the other day that this new discovery, they made, a, they made a, a new zygote from molecules. Is this true? And they're saying, well, that proves evolution. And so therefore you get people you can bounce it off of and you can help others reason and they can help you reason on why indeed these discoveries they talk about are overrated. And number two, they don't really, they don't really support the evolutionary worldview. It's so true that it's not just a religious aspect of fellowship of, of being in, in groups of people, but also scientifically, you know, you, that's how you learn. I, I would assume that you don't just learn this stuff in a vacuum uh, on your own. You have to bounce these ideas off of each other. That's awesome. Who, who, who might be the, um, the leading uh, uh, candidates or the, le the leaders of this creation, scientific creation movement today? Well, of course, Ken Ham is the most, most well-known and, uh, Number of others, Dwayne Gish was for years was very important uh, in the creation movement. Henry Morris was very important in the creation movement. So their number, unfortunately, many of these are not with us, gone to their heavenly reward. But they their work was very important in helping people bring us back to a biblical worldview. And in science is a lot of competition, partially because when you go through well, a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate, and so on, you're going to be exposed only to the evolutionary worldview. And I spend next week, I'll spend a lot of time in Christian schools. And concern they have is that 
the teachers have degrees in biology. They know a lot about biology. They teach biology, but they don't really know a lot about the creation worldview or the problems in biology in supporting evolution. They believe in creation. They have the knowledge about biology or whatever subject they teach, but they're really not highly informed about the, the, the other side and why the evolutionary ideas which are taught are not true. And so that was one of my roles is to spend time. In fact, the last time I was at a school was in Michigan a few months ago, and the first session was to spend a day with the teachers. And the goal was, of course, with the kids as well. But on the other hand, I thought spending the time with the teachers was really helpful because they had a lot of questions. And it was apparent to me they didn't really have a good knowledge of the creation worldview and didn't have really answers to the evolutionary claims. And therefore, supposed to be an hour, I think, but we were probably two hours in questions and answers. And I guess I had to admit I was surprised that they really didn't have a great deal of knowledge about the problems with evolution just assume, well, it must be wrong. I don't know why, but it just couldn't be true. So that was very useful. Well, they might also assume, it's, since everybody believes it, I mean, it's a universal belief that evolution is true. Um, that, that can't be um, easy to deal with either. What, who, what would you recommend if uh, a, say, someone like myself, a layman, to pick up a book or two uh, that might explain the, not only the differences between evolution and creationism, but how creationism is good science. Well, there's a lot of books I could recommend, but I guess I'm inclined to recommend my own. <laughs> but my Three Pillars of Evolution Demolished is one book, and then the remaining Pillars of Evolution Demolished. It's a two-set volume, which just came out a couple months ago, actually. And uh, I explain in the Pillars book that evolution is based on three pillars, natural selection, and mutations, as well as abiogenesis. And I show all of those are simply <laughs> not true, not supported. Clearly, the scientific evidence is against those three pillars as supporting evolution. So it's a short book. It's not. You, have, you can buy lots of books which cover many of the details, but mine's a pithy, easy-to-follow book which covers those three areas. That'd be good. Um, pithy is always good for laymen, I'm sure. Um, as we look at this and and want to get this message out to more and more people, what is it that if you could reduce everything that you do to one statement, like a, a, a motto or a mission statement, what do you think it might be? Well, presentations in the churches. I can't. They try to get me in the schools and that just doesn't work. In fact, even at a, a school in Pennsylvania, Penn State to be specific, they have a Christian group there and they wanted me to speak to the Christian group. And the Christian group says, no, we, there are too many problems, can't do that, um, with, to the Christian group. And so unfortunately, I can't even get in to speak to the Christian groups in universities. Taylor University, we tried the same thing. Taylor University is a Christian college. And we tried to, to do a presentation there. And uh, they said, no, we can't, we, we can't do this. So the main way I have of reaching people is presentations in churches. And so some, there's a church in Delta where last six, seven years, I think I've been going to. So you can reach a lot of people by, and I only go once a year, an hour sermon. So therefore, I'm slowly reaching people at that church and they're more supportive and they're also more aware of the other side. And so ideally, you need a regular presentation of apologetics 
And that's what I try to do to get into the churches. But of course, some pastors don't want to give up their time. They, you know, that's, in fact, the church I was at yesterday took me a year to get in. Oh yeah, we want you to come in. Watch it. Oh yeah, we want you to speak, but we're, we're kind of booked up for a year. So can you speak September of, of 2023? And I said, well, yeah, I'll get it on my calendar. I can come in. That's okay. But if I had a way to get in, and of course, once I did, it turned out very well. Wasn't any problems. In fact, I've been over 400 churches and I have yet to encounter any significant op- opposition. Been very supportive consistently. Except I did have in a church in Ohio a lawyer who was a bright guy and the pastor warned me, yeah, he's an evolutionist, so you have to be careful. And so after the presentation, I was supposed to get, get back to the motel at nine o'clock and I didn't get back until about midnight. And I talked to this fellow for at least two hours. We had a great conversation and he really appreciated it. He was able to see the other side for the first time. And so that worked out really, really well. So I've had one opposition, well, one other in, in California, Anaheim, but he's at least thinking about what I said. And so that's the opposite. Op, that's it. That's the opposition. And in both those cases, it turned out very well because the person was able to listen and he had his questions, good questions. I was able to help answer them. And as a result, it turned out very well. So the opposition is very, very uh, small. Most churches, yeah, good sermon, enjoyed I agree with you. No problem. See you later. <laughs> I'm preaching the choir, which is fine. And at the church the other day, I mentioned, I really need to reach the young people who are going to be exposed to the other side in their college career. And therefore, that's critical. But, you know, it's many churches. They have a lot of activities. They have a lot of things going on. And there's a lot of things that are important. And, and uh, my focus is apologetics. And some feel, yeah, they're important, but we just... You know, we've got other things we have to worry about. If someone wants to bring you in to speak, where can they uh, reach you? Just plan plan ahead, email me, and plan. the key is to plan ahead because I get too many things and then I end up with conflicts. And so if plan ahead, then I can you know, get you on, get on the calendar and then something else comes along. Up, I can say, well, I can't do that. If I want to put this in the show notes, uh, how can they get a – is there a website you've got uh, or – you don't want me to give your email address out to just everybody. Well, yeah, you could. That's all okay. right. Just jbergman1946 at gmail.com. All right. You got it. You'll have to filter through all of it. I'll put something in the in the byline so I have an idea of what, what it's about because I do. I have several emails, and one gets crowded, and I just get another new email. And I'm ready to get another a third email so that I get – emails that are important and don't have to worry about all the spam junk. Got it. I got it. Oh, very good. Well, Dr. Bergman, thank you so much for spending some time with us and and talking about this very important subject. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yep. And uh, I I, uh, keep up the good work and get the, get the message out, my friend. I have some time on today's episode to reflect on some questions and the Word of God, um, the questions that were submitted in a recent worship service uh, at St. Matthew in Hawthorne Woods, where I'm on the pastoral staff. And I had given a message uh, called Like Children in the message series, The Greatest. And Jesus talks about that um, 
the greatest in the kingdom of God is like a child, uh, someone who is courageous, someone who is curious, someone who is committed, um, has faith, um, and uh, has a childlike faith. Uh, the question, though, was submitted was part of a, the reading from Matthew 18 where I took my text from to, to, to uh, craft a message on, to preach a sermon. Uh, a part of the, the, the passage that I didn't cover, and it was about the temptations to sin. And I want to pick it up in verse 8, Matthew 18. Perhaps this was read uh, in your worship service where you go to church recently as well. And maybe we'll, we can talk about this. Maybe you had some questions about it as well. Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, by the way. It's Matthew 18, verses 8 through 9. And the question that was submitted, um, he, he or she, whoever it was, it was an anonymous um, uh, submission, uh, that uh, Jesus is talking about um, something very, very brutal uh, and sort of hopefully asking, it was allegorical, right? Jesus was being allegorical and not literal. Yes and no. I think that um, Jesus was literally trying to tell us uh, or trying to tell us literally how dangerous sin is. Sin separates us from God, and if we're separated from God at the end of this earthly life, we go to the place that was prepared for those who choose to separate themselves from God, demons, and of course the head demon, Satan, the devil, uh, Lucifer. But is Jesus really saying, yeah, we're going to go into heaven. Uh, if my hand causes me to sin, I'm going to cut it off, and so I'll go to heaven with only one hand. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, the Bible seems to indicate that uh, we will have glorified bodies in heaven. Uh, we will be recognizable as who we are, just as Jesus was recognizable in his glorified body um, to the disciples after the resurrection, to Paul on the road to Damascus, to John uh, as the visions of Revelation were given to him. But glorified bodies, um, for example, I don't think I'll be needing these. Uh, my eyesight will be perfect um, when I get to heaven. Um, Will I have scars? I, I really don't know. I know that Jesus does. Uh, he has scars on his hands and feet to show us that it really was him who was crucified on the cross and died for our sins. Um, but we will have glorified bodies. And I think what Jesus is, we're not going to literally be missing a hand or foot, or we should cut off our hand or feet. We should cut out of our lives anything that is going to tempt us to sin because sin is so dangerous. That's Jesus' point here. Um, so I, I'm not so sure that he's being literal here. Uh, so yes, I think he is being somewhat allegorical. But the the the, the seriousness is there uh, that sin is that dangerous, and we should take it seriously. And we need to fight against it through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through word and sacrament uh, as much as we can. Now, another question that was uh, submitted was... Um, from the reading that also was in this worship service that I didn't cover. Um, and it's Romans 13. Uh, and Romans 13 says uh, at the very beginning, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, this seems to be telling us that, you know what, um, the government has to be obeyed. Um, and, and Paul talks about this, and we 
I do believe that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's word for us, that um, he does establish authority uh, to make sure that justice will prevail uh, and to um, curb bad conduct. Uh, and Paul continues to talk about that, and then he talks about paying taxes and revenues and 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 the the like. Um, this is this can be difficult. Uh, what do we do with a government that is uh, clearly immoral? That a government is uh, corrupt? That a government is truly sinful? That uh, a, a government that is killing people uh, for its own gain or for its own power? Um, do we follow that government? Do we, uh, do we follow them? Uh, do we um, submit to their authority? Yes and no. Um, Paul was living in a day and age, the Roman Empire, um, and if uh, Romans may have been actually written right around the time of, of Nero, Emperor Nero, a very corrupt uh, emperor from what history tells us, um, killed a lot of people, had a lot of people killed, especially Christians, and yet Paul says this, submit yourself to the governing authority. Uh, but not to the point where we will do things that are against what God has told us to do. Um, in the book of Acts, um, Peter is uh, submitting to the authority of his day in Jerusalem. However, he does clearly state, um, yeah, we will submit to your authority. However, when that authority contradicts what God has told us, we will obey God rather than man. So I think that, uh, yes, we do submit ourselves to the authority of the government into the point, or up to the point that we, um, that, that, that God's will is broken, that, that we go against what God would like us to do. How do we know what God wants us to do? Well, you can go to the Ten Commandments. That would be clearly the, uh, a great place to go uh, to, to learn how to live as according to God's will for us. Um, I think that in the United States, where I happen to live and, and serve and my church is, uh, we have uh, the blessing of God that we have uh, the ability to um, object to what our government says if we believe that it is saying something against God's will. Um, and, and without um, too much threat of repercussions, or at least um, the, the repercussions are somewhat less severe than perhaps in Paul's day when uh, Rome could could uh, destroy you, could kill you, could Im imprison you for really no reason at all, um, or at least um, you know if they felt like it, if they deemed you uh, a threat to them, or they just don't like you. They could do that, um, like a dictatorship. In the United States, we really haven't gotten to that point, some would say, yet. Um, we still have the rule of law. We still have um, the laws of this land based on our United States Constitution, which I think clearly has been uh, established with an eye towards what God's will is for us uh, as revealed in the Bible. Um, so we can object to the government when it is objectionable to God, when it is going telling us to do something that God clearly says we should not do or to tell us to not do something that God clearly says we should, like spread the gospel. Um, then we are, are well within our means, um, God-given right, to object and to not submit to the governing authority. Again, this is a, a reflection on, on, on God's word in Romans 13. So I had a little bit of time today for a word reflection today. And if you'd like uh, me to um, con uh, uh, take on a, a question or a comment, 
uh, in, in this segment of the podcast that we can get to, um, just submit those to us. And uh, you can find our email address on our website. Website is stmats.net, S-T-M-A-T-T-S dot net. I believe there is a link on our uh, podcast page for that as well, so you can get a hold of us. Thanks for joining me today on Word Reflection, and I'll be back in just a bit to tell you how you can connect to St. Matthew. I want to thank Jerry Bergman, Dr. Bergman, for joining me on today's episode of Reflection. Uh, if you'd like to know more about uh, Dr. Bergman, there are links to how you can get a hold of him. He uh, would like you to email him if you'd like to ask him questions or to get a hold of him to have him come speak at your church or your group about uh, the things that we talked about today um, and all uh, and the, the things that are in his uh, field of expertise, uh, genetics and uh, biology and creationism. Um, Reflection, this podcast, is uh, a weekly podcast. Uh, produced by St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Hawthorne Woods, Illinois. And I, and I want to give you how you can connect to uh, St. Matthew. You can go to our website. It's www.stmats.net. That's S-T-M-A-T-T-S dot net. And if you find yourself in the northwest suburbs of Chicago where we are, uh, we'd love to see you at one of our worship services or events or Bible studies here at St. Matthew. Uh, as I said, we are located in Hawthorne Woods. Uh, Hawthorne Woods is a, a small village in the northwest suburbs, um, about one hour northwest of downtown Chicago, although we are only a half hour's drive from O'Hare Airport, the major transportation hub for the Chicagoland area. So uh, we're kind of easy to get to. Um, we're, we're relatively close to the, this big city, so if you find yourself in this area, uh, we'd love to have you come out and join us. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, uh, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, and I wanted to uh, mention that our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alitu, the podcast maker. Uh, find your free music for podcast over at podcasthost.com slash free music. We're quickly coming to the end of the season, uh, this, this first season of the Reflection podcast. Uh, we've got just a couple more episodes to go. Uh, and then uh, if we, we, I am planning on uh, having two special episodes uh, in November, one in November, and then one in uh, December, one on Thanksgiving, or, or about Thanksgiving, actually, and one about Christmas. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And then a new season of the podcast will begin in February of 2024. We'd love to have you share this podcast with others. So uh, click on the share link wherever you're getting your podcast. We are on the Apple podcast. We are on YouTube podcast, uh, Google podcast, and elsewhere. Uh, we are hosted by Spotify uh, podcasts. And so you can also rate us. We'd love to have your glowing review and your five-star rating. Uh, that gets us uh, a chance to uh, get out to other people uh, and share this with others. We'd love to have more and more people find the Reflection Podcast, and you can help us. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, I'm Ed Blonsky. I'm on the pastoral staff here at St. Matthew, where this podcast originates. And I hope you'll again join me on the Reflection Podcast. God's richest blessings to you. Thank you.